you know, there, what's happening is factory farming um, is evil for sure, but just going back to the, the old way um, and becoming a small family farm isn't necessarily the answer. I live in ag land. I'm surrounded by organic dairy farms that are now being seen as the solution for sustainable agriculture. Um, but, and, and people feel, well, I don't have to give up dairy after all. I just have to choose the right kind of dairy. And I think what we have to ask is, is there any, is there any way of doing the wrong thing better? Hello, and thank you for joining us on the PBM podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Lockie. It's really great to be back in the hot seat for season two of the PBM podcast. This week's episode, we have the wonderful Miyoko Shinner. Miyoko is a tenacious and award-winning vegan celebrity chef behind Miyoko's Kitchen. Her passion for her craft and mission is absolutely unrivaled. The publication of her groundbreaking book, Artesian Vegan Cheese, definitely kicked off the start of the vegan cheese revolution. Miyoko and I chatted for hours about her life growing up in Japan and moving over to the US, the explosion of the plant-based food revolution and much, much more. Before we go into this week's podcast, I want to mention another podcast that is taking the world by storm, Switch for Good. This is a riveting podcast hosted by Dotsi and Alexandra, both of whom which fought back severe food addictions. They interview nutritionists, pro athletes, innovative thought leaders, physicians, plant-based celebrities, you name it. Through their shared experiences, you'll learn how to optimize your health and well-being and pave the way for a more meaningful life. So get inspired and check out Switch for Good. Let's get on to the episode. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Yoko, to Plant-Based News, and thank you so much for joining us. Well, I'm so glad we figured out the uh, technological issues, and I'm here talking to you. Very excited to, to be on the show. Yes. So it's been a long time coming. The last time we saw each other was actually last year at the Animal Rights Conference in Los Angeles. Yes, and that was a great event. It was. Um, we, we discussed and talked about all kinds of things from humane slaughter to... Uh, the Dairy Pride Act to all kinds of different kind of ins and outs of the vegan movement. So we're going to dive into a little bit of that stuff later. But uh, before we do that, and before we go into all the incredible things you're doing with yourself now, let's go back and talk about your vegan journey and how did you discover this lifestyle and and uh, and yeah, where did it all begin? Yeah, well, you know, it's it's one of those things, uh, a journey, an evolution that sometimes uh, an individual is not even completely aware of really what's going on. Um, and I think that was sort of, it was my experience. Um, you know, I became a vegetarian at the age of 12 when somehow I made that connection between the food on my plate and the life of an animal. And from the for that day, my mother put a pork chop in front of me and I looked at it and I couldn't eat it. I never looked at meat again as food. It just sort of all of a sudden became, I don't know, like like a table or a chair or anything else you wouldn't eat. It it no longer looked to me like food. And it was very, very simple. You know, people, kids would try to taunt me and say, don't you want to eat this hamburger or whatever? And I was like, no, why would I eat that? It's very, very simple. Um, but I ate a lot of dairy. I ate a lot of eggs. You know, I thought I had to, to get the protein and the calcium. Um, but in my 20s, I made the next connection about really what was happening with dairy and coupled with the fact that my stomach hurt all the time. And I thought, wow, maybe, you know, ain't so good for me. 
um, I gave that up. But that was a lot harder. It took me a, a number of years to really kind of wean myself off of dairy completely because you know, I was lured by the the gooey, stretchy cheese on a pizza when I when I went to a party or some delicious looking brie. So I was a yeah. cheating vegan for a few years. We'll put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and cheating so I, as they call them. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a lot of cheating vegans. You know, and I mean, I, I don't blame them. I'm. It's not an ethical. Uh, for me, it's like you do the best you can, and I was doing the best that I could you know, uh, with the uh, the few resources that we had, you know, thirty five years ago or so. So, when it came to the kind of making this connection, like what was it that what was it that stood out to you as a child? Do you remember what was it that kind of triggered that change within you? Because obviously, um, you know, our life, our lives in 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 the world today are continuously surrounded by animal products and we're always being told we have to eat them. They're on the TV, they're in newspapers, in magazines, on billboards. We're always being kind of brainwashed and programmed to consume these things. What why do you think you were different? Well, it, you know, it wasn't even me. I went on a camping trip with some vegetarians and over 2 days I ate really horrible vegetarian food. You know, like I had millet for the first time and I thought, oh my God, I'm going to die. This stuff is so terrible. Um, But I don't know what happened. You know, it's just one of those uh, things that unconscious things, but something changed in me. And Mm -hmm. when my mother put those pork chops in front of me, I I still remember that moment. I, I looked down at the pork chop. I was so excited to eat it again. And I looked at it and I thought, I can't eat this. This isn't food. This was an animal. I don't know how that happened. It was just. But did someone tell you? Did you? Did, did you? What did someone kind of influence you, or did you? What did, did you see? Something, or was it just an internal, like intuitive feeling? Well, it was that that camping trip and and eating uh, being with those vegetarians for a couple of days. Mm. Uh, this was sort of back in the late sixties, and uh, I you know, I had these friends in school that whose parents were part of some I don't know. I don't know if it was Hare Krishna or some movement, you know, where they meditated and they were vegetarian. So they were, they had grown up as vegetarians Um, and maybe just talking to them. I don't even remember the conversations, but they influenced me and got me to go vegetarian at that age. Um, And obviously like growing, tell us a little bit about your kind of background and your history um, uh, coming to America and the, the food your family coming to America and the kind of food history and food culture that your that comes from your family's culture. Oh, sure. So, you know, I was born in a little uh, little farming village, a little village in Japan outside of Tokyo. It's it's pretty funny because it's all this one big urban sprawl now in Tokyo. But when I grew up there in this town called Hiyoshi, which is where Keio University is, um, one of the most prestigious schools in the country. Um, it was, you know, this little rural town. Um, there was one car uh, owned by the the the, uh, the fishmonger. Um, I lived right next door to a rice paddy. Mm-hmm. Um, I lived there with my mom, um, and our um, we had a, a woman who helped my mom. She had a, a she was a very independent woman. She had a stuffed animal business, um, wow. and so we had a helper named Fumi Chun, and it was a great little life there. And I ran around and you know, ate Japanese food. We didn't have any dairy products. Um, it was a very typical traditional Japanese diet centered on rice, vegetables, um, you know, natto, which I mentioned earlier about what I had had for breakfast. Uh, natto is a fermented soybean. Um, so you ate soy foods, you ate fish, 
um, very little meat because that was not part of the Japanese diet uh, until recently. You know, it was the Japanese actually considered it savage to kill a four-legged creature for for many many centuries. And there's a whole whole story about how the black ships um, from the Netherlands brought uh, cows, and where the first cow was slaughtered, um, I think in the 17th century. Uh, mm-hmm. in Kobe. And now, you know, they're famous for Kobe beef. Um, but it was considered a savage act. Like you wouldn't kill a four-legged creature any more than you'd, you know, walk with your shoes into the house. That th- these was a very wow. civilized, peaceful society and, and mostly plant-based, to be honest. In mm-hmm. fact, there was a, a royal decree the, um, that uh, you couldn't eat any animal products. And, and there was a, a period of, I believe, a couple hundred years where Japanese were bound to be vegan. And even today, there's a, a tradition of what's called shojin ryori, um, which is uh, a, basically a vegan cuisine that is carried um, on in the temples. And mm-hmm. you, can to, you can go to Kyoto and, and have the most amazing vegan food at any temple. It's fantastic. Mm. Because meat, meat replacements or kind of uh, mock meats actually were kind of pretty much born in Asia, weren't they? That's um, right. Yeah. In China, in Japan. Yes, absolutely. So there is that tradition that's been there for a long time, which is why you know there was a reliance on soy because they provided uh, you know the sort of satisfaction that that meat provided. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's definitely evolved over time. And, and if you look in the marketplace today, and we can get back, we can get into that later. We're surrounded by these incredible alternatives. Um, you obviously, your family. How did your family end up in the U.S.? Obviously, well, you moved. Yeah, my father is actually American, and my mother is Japanese, so they lived separately. And and that's so we eventually, my mother and I eventually moved to the United States to join my father. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, you know, I spoke no English. It was a big transition. Mm. And obviously growing up in American culture, like uh, how was it quite, did it take a while for you to adjust? And I imagine it was quite scary at first. Oh, it was really, really scary. You know, I was kind of the oddity. Um, My mother would, she didn't know anything about preparing American food. Uh, So she would pack uh, onigiri or rice balls or, or something for the school lunch. And people just, you know, would peer into my lunchbox. They thought it was really odd. Um, I did meet this Swedish girl who had also um, been trans, uh, which was a transplant as well. And her mother really didn't understand American food either, even though it's still a European, but Americans, you know, ate a very different diet than I think most Europeans. I remember she and I sort of bonded because we both had kind of strange food. (laughs) So. And, and growing up in the U.S., like, have you, I assume you've witnessed a real shift and a change of American food culture because you look at the standard American diet now and it's really high fat, salt, sugar, processed food. Uh, when I, whenever I've been to the U.S., I've kind of been blown away by the volume of processed foods in the sense of when I say processed foods, I mean the things that are high in like preservatives and colorings and um, salt and sugar and fat. I mean, have you, I assume you've seen it really like ramp up over the, over the decades since you've lived there. Yes. And basically snack foods. It, it, it's, it's really, really horrible. I think the big shift sort of started in the seventies when they came out with TV dinners. I remember that. And, and we celebrated it. You know, we thought there were vegetarian TV dinners too. And it was like, Oh my God, this is fantastic. Um, so I think the the big shift sort of happened then, um, and uh, in Japan, you know, we didn't have that. I mean, we didn't even snack. 
So it was a novelty. It was a novelty. You know, um, I remember moving to the United States and there was a local uh, mom and pop grocery store down the street. We lived in this small t- community. My mother and I worked, uh, went down there. It was uh, run by a guy named Bill. I can still picture him. And there was all this candy. I remember pixie sticks that had like this, little, you know, powdered, it was like powdered sugar crystals that you'd pop in your mouth and they would sort of explode with flavor. And my mother was just so excited to find all this stuff because we didn't have anything like that. You'd have uh, candy maybe, you know, once a year on New Year's Day, for example. And a snack for us was the... Uh, the sweet potato man who would come around with his coal laden cart and these sweet potatoes. And and we would just, we just love these fire roasted sweet potatoes. They were so delicious. They were like candy Uh, or Mm. that, that was like the ice cream truck. I remember that my first experience having ice cream in Japan, my mother and I got all dressed up. We got into a taxi. We went to this department store and sat at this table um, and the waiter came, you know, this very properly dressed waiter with a bow tie came out with these two little glasses, those little glass parfait dishes with a, a scoop of vanilla ice cream each. And, you know, my mother had told me, you know, this is going to be a really special day and you just, you're going to be so excited. I remember tasting ice cream for the first time and just feeling like, oh my God, this is incredible. I mean, it was uh-huh. really a special occasion to enjoy things like that. And Mm -hmm. today it's just, you know, that's all you eat. Um, Mm. So my mother ended up kind of spoiling me. um, After she began to learn how to make sandwiches and things, she started buying me hostess cupcakes and treats on a daily basis. And I became the envy of the entire uh, elementary school because I always had a hostess baked treat in my lunchbox. And so I would share that with all my friends everybody else was still getting apples and here I am, you know, this transplant from Japan and I'm getting all this junk. Food. <laughs> and how did your, did your health transform or change obviously as you grew into your teens uh, going from what is probably quite a healthy food culture to what would probably become and see become to be quite unhealthy and very heavy in salt, fat and sugar. Well, you know, I think becoming a vegetarian at 12 is what saved me because mm. uh, you know, I, I was, by the time I was 12, I was eating a lot of junk food. And then uh, when I became 12 and became a vegetarian, I had to learn how to cook for myself. And I started reading books on nutrition and I swore off sugar at one point and I stopped eating a lot of processed food um, and eating whole foods and trying to eat vegetables. And I'm not saying I never ate donuts or anything, but, um, you know, I would say that compared to the average American, I was, I had a much healthier diet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you looked around at your peers and friends at school, did you see this? Did you notice the kind of change over the years of people getting bigger and bigger? Because obviously, you know, the U.S. is known for being one of the most obese, if not the obese nation in in the world um, because of the diet and the way people eat and also the lack of um, exercise. A lot of people spending more and more time indoors. Yes, certainly now. But this is, you know, I'm, I'm an old lady. So, you know, back in the 70s when I went to high school, um, and I graduated in 74, um, people were still slim. I mean, I think quantities, people ate less food. They did eat processed food, but they didn't eat that much. It was less convenience food, I, I suppose. It wasn't as quite, you know, it wasn't quite as readily available as it is now. I mean, you, you didn't have, you know, you'd go to McDonald's like once in a great while. That was a treat. Dessert was still a treat. Dessert mm. was not an everyday uh, thing. I think people have come to expect these things on a, on a daily basis, but you know, you had Sunday night dessert. That was kind of how things were back then. 
it must be incredible to to see and also a little bit scary to see the changes of the food culture in the US and, and the effect it's had on people. But um, speaking of food, were you always and how did you kind of get into um, food preparation and kind of your passion for what's led to you, led you to what you do now? Well, I think it, was, it was becoming a vegetarian at the age of 12. Um, my mother uh, put up with it for a couple of months and she made me separate meals. And then she just said, I'm not doing this anymore. You're on your own. You learn to cook. Uh, and I think she was hoping that I would go back to eating meat, you know, and I think about her perspective. She really, really worked hard to learn how to cook uh, American food. And, mm-hmm. you know, we had gone from eating a fairly healthy, uh, ve- close to vegetarian um, Japanese diet to making sure that we had meat twice a day. My, you know, that was what my father wanted to make sure because he'd grown up in the depression and he wanted to make sure that, uh, you know, that we had plenty of meat and dairy. And mm-hmm. so it was a very, very animal centric diet that my mother had learned to prepare. And so I think it, you know, it was kind of like a personal affront to her that all of a sudden I was rejecting that. And, you know, I want to eat beans and vegetables. So I had to learn to cook. Um, and I became very, very passionate about food um, in middle school and high school. I, you know, I worked my way through uh, the Time Life series on um, the good cook. And I read every cookbook I could find. And it just became sort of, uh, you know, what I live for. I wanted to become the best vegetarian chef I possibly could throughout high school. And then when I became a vegan, my passion ignited even more. And and what what was the trigger for the ve- the vegan the vegan side of things? Because obviously that you were obviously from twelve ethically minded and then throughout your teens began to ask questions about health and nutrition but what was the big trigger for you just to make the switch because you obviously loved cheese yeah oh my god did i love cheese i mean i celebrated with cheese you know every friday night cheese and wine that was my big thing Uh, i went through europe when i was 20 spent six months traveling through europe with a friend of mine and our our goal was to just get to every cheese shop we could get to. And, and we lived on cheese and, and French bread, I think, you know, or pretty much. Um, but I think the trigger was really, you know, it was health and the realization was like, why am I eating dairy? I, I don't know. It was just one of those things. Again, I think there could have been an article in Vegetarian Times, which was the only uh, paper uh, magazine around at the time. But I think there was probably some article in there and, and uh, there wasn't that much information about the treatment of, of cows back then. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't think I had that much knowledge. But um, uh, truth be told, I was living in Japan. I'd gone back there uh, to live. And um, I was living with my aunt and uncle for a while. And they were really, really upset that I was vegetarian. Um, and, and, of course, there were no other vegetarians. There was no support system. And I got into a point where I was eating fish again. Um, and one day it was like a wake up call and I realized, wow, I'm not a vegetarian anymore. I'm eating fish and I, and my stomach also hurt cause I was eating a lot of dairy. Um, and I didn't realize that your stomach wasn't supposed to hurt. I thought that was like, you're, you know, it's, it's supposed to hurt. You're supposed to have digestive issues. Um, and I thought it was like, I suddenly thought I looked at myself and, and thought, wow, what am I doing? Mm. Um, and coupled probably with something I'd read, I just said, you know, I'm going vegan. Mm. Um, I didn't know how to pronounce it. I wasn't sure if it was 
vegan or vegan or, or whatever. Because back then, you know, there, I was in Japan. There were no, I didn't know any other vegetarians, let alone vegans. Um, my only connection to anything vegan was was Vegetarian Times magazine, which in itself wasn't even vegan, but there was probably some article about it in there. Mm-hmm. So. And, and how did you, obviously, with all these challenges and so- social pressure from family, how did you stick with it? Like, how did, because obviously now there's no excuse. There's so much choice. And we'll go into a bit of detail about how you've made it easier for people with your with the incredible products you've made. But at the time, like, how did you manage to, to keep at it? Oh, you know, I'm very, very stubborn. When I get an idea, <laughs> I just go for it. Um, and, you know, as I mentioned, I did cheat on cheese occasionally. Um, mm-hmm. but I, I think I stuck with it because the more I learned about it, um, about animal agriculture, about its impacts on, on the environment, et cetera. And once again, you know, there wasn't that much information, but there was some, occasionally I would read something. Um, it was, um, you know, it, it was the right thing to do. And I realized I couldn't be perfect about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly wore leather. Um, I even remember buying a leather jacket because I believed that leather was a byproduct. Yeah. And so, you know, definitely um, without support, without all the information, you know, I certainly wasn't the perfect vegan by any stretch of the imagination, but my heart was definitely in the right place. Mm. Amazing. And obviously then you, um, your kind of work and, and everything that you've done now kind of has evolved quite a lot. You've, you've, produced several cookbooks. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you produced? Sure. So the cookbook was my first project when I went vegan in my mid twenties. I actually started having these, uh, I wanted to have French Italian style meals. I really loved European cuisine. And so I started playing around with, with both um, soy and cashews. And um, I started having these weekly dinner parties and I'd have, I put together like a, a 12 to you know, 10 to 12 course tasting menu, invite various people over. And mm-hmm. I started assembling my recipes. Um, I got into, uh, was connected with people in the natural foods industry in Japan and began teaching cooking classes, developing menus for uh, small restaurants, et cetera, and started working in the industry in Japan. Um, but I, I, I assembled um, a lot of my, my best recipes and I actually wrote um, a cookbook in Japanese. And I was unable to find a publisher there in the 80s, um, but I was able to find a publisher in the United States. And so I, I translated the book I had written in Japanese into English and, and got my first book published, which was called The Nowans and Epicure. It was probably one of two um, cookbooks that came out that was really sort of a uh, you know, high-end vegan food. Um, this was mm-hmm. 1990. I'm just looking at it on Amazon. I love it. Gourmet vegan recipes for the enlightened palate. That's exactly right. Yes. And it has a very, it's, <laughs> it's got a, on the cover, there's a pate en croute, which is, you know, really, I mean, it, it just, it was so 70s or 80s. It was so. I, lo- and I love your, I love your hair in the picture. You look very 70s. I know, yeah, <laughs> it was pretty amazing. funny. It was pretty funny. Amazing. But I really wanted to prove to the world that you could have spectacular, rich, indulgent vegan food, um, and and that was you know I, that was that became my goal. I, I just wanted to show people that you know vegan food didn't have to be about just eating lentils. Mm-hmm. Amazing, and obviously, fast forward to today, you have built yourself an incredible business, Miyoko's. Um, you still call it Miyoko's Kitchen or Miyoko's? Just Miyoko's. Well, uh, we're 
we're calling it Miyoko's now, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm just looking at your website. Um, So tell us a little bit how how this all started, because obviously the the business is based on the idea that dairy doesn't have to come from cows, does it? And we can make these incredible, tasty products uh, using plant milks and not uh, cow milk. That's exactly right. And, and, and it's wonderful that there's so many other people that are coming into the, the field now with innovation, with brand new products that are going to replace dairy. So mm. this is the future. They call you the queen of vegan cheese, which I love. Yes, but I did not actually have a coronation. So um, I'm expecting you, Robbie. I'm going to fly to the UK. and I will, you know, We will set it up. It'll be a green carpet and everything. Please do. Absolutely. Um, but anyway, yeah, you know, over the years after my first cookbook, uh, I got, I moved back to the United States eventually and, and, uh, opened a, a little vegan bakery, which morphed into a restaurant, which morphed into a natural food company back in the nineties where I was making, uh, meat analogs, we'll put it that way. Um, and eventually sold that company. I wrote a few more cookbooks. Um, I taught cooking for many years in the McDougal program and, and, uh, you know, at events and festivals. Um, and eventually I had to revisit my love of cheese. And, you know, I've been wondering like, okay, I've written all these books and had all these businesses, but why have I not really focused on the thing that I love the most, which was just, you know, uh, the fancy cheeses. That's really, it wasn't, you know, I wasn't ever into what Americans love, which were craft singles and processed cheese, but I like European <laughs> style cheese. The the uh-huh. the fine cheese platter cheese, and so I started focusing on those um, in the uh, early two thousands, trying to figure out how do I make it. My first cheeses were made from making yogurt. I would make soy yogurt, and then I would drain the yogurt, and then um, make cheese out of that. That was the beginning, and then started playing around with cashews, um, and eventually it led to the publishing of. Artisan Vegan Cheese, which became kind of a cult classic in the United States. Um, and, you know. My mother has that and has made some of your cheeses. I'm sorry? I said my mother has made that, has has that book, and she's made some of your cheeses. What a wonderful mother. Say hi to her for me. <laughs> she went vegan uh, last January, actually, at 60. So oh, congratulations. Congre- well, then we're the same age if that was last year, your mother and I. I could be your mother. And then you would be vegan even sooner. <laughs> what an amazing mom you'd, you'd be. <laughs> anyway, um, so you you have to ask my kids whether I am or not. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they I'm sure I'm sure they were. But anyway, um, so yeah, so the cookbook is really what what spawned the business, um, but not without encouragement from a lot of people who you know, the, lots of consumers and readers of my books kept encouraging me. But really, the uh, the impetus was um, running into Seth Tibbet, the founder of Tofurky, whose products mm-hmm. can be found all over the UK. And uh, he had been. For those who don't, who don't know um, Seth Tibbet, do you want to explain? But what what Tofurky is? It's a, it's meat analog, isn't it? Yeah. So Tofurky is a meat analog. Um, it's a it's a turkey roast, and um, he and I actually used to be competitors. So back in the nineties, I had I had this company called Now and Zen started as a restaurant and then it morphed into this natural food company. And my first product was actually called the Unturkey. And it was a, a stuffed roast with a skin and it came with gravy and it was only available during the holidays. Um, and so, mm-hmm. and he had a product called Tofurky. So we were competitors. 
but the natural food industry is just a very supportive industry. So it wasn't like we, you know, we were throwing roasts at each other or anything like that. We were very <laughs> supportive of each other. So he's yeah. Anyway, so he his company is one of the the premier uh, you know meat alternative companies in the world now, and his products are sold in, in many countries all over the UK as well too. And he's just a great, authentic voice for the animals. So I love Seth. He's wonderful. Um, and so anyway, we ran into each other after 20 years or something. And um, I gave him some of my cheese. He had heard about these cheeses that I had been working on about my cookbook. And he tasted them. He said, wow, you really should start a company. And if you do, I'll be your first investor. Amazing. And that was just that, you know, that's what I needed to hear was. That just goes to show that we should always be as kind as we can to, to all the people around us, even the people who we compete with, because you never know when they may be sitting across from you at an investor's table. <laughs> well, you know what? I, I would even, um, I would even go as far as to say you should be nice, even to those you deem as your enemies, even if they're from animal mm -hmm. agriculture. Because you're mm -hmm. not going to win them over if you don't. Um, mm, yeah, we can definitely talk about tactics, and we talked, we spoke a little bit about that at um, the Animal Rights Conference. But um, going zooming into the products themselves, now I've tried them when I was at the AR conference. Your cheese is not like any vegan cheese anyone has probably ever tasted. Now, vegan cheese is traditionally being bland, tasteless, rubbery, uh, and and mostly just kind of. Um, a, uh, like you say, a vegan yogurt that's been firmed up and added with a bit of flavoring. But your cheeses are different because you ferment them. Do you want to talk a little bit about why this is different and why they're so delicious? Yeah. So when I was trying to figure out how to make these cheeses, I read books on how to make dairy cheese. Uh, and I took actually a dairy cheese class to understand how to go through the process of it. And I was the only one who didn't actually taste any of the cheese. And people thought I was a little bit a little strange, but uh, you know, I learned techniques there. It was very helpful uh, to learn about fermentation because all because that fermentation is really what transforms dairy milk into cheese. So you not, you inoculate mm -hmm. cheese with uh, cultures with lactic acid bacteria, and there's different you know there's hundreds and hundreds of different bacteria that produce different flavor profiles. Um, also, add an enzyme that curdles the protein. Um, to dairy cheese anyway, and then you separate the curds from whey. Um, mm -hmm. But with plant-based cheeses, they don't necessarily, the proteins may, may or may not curdle. So, um, you know, the exact process may not be, the process may not be exactly as in making dairy cheese, but the fermentation process is extremely important to deliver those cheesy flavors. So when you inoculate uh, cashew milk or almond milk or any, any of these other milks with, or purees with um, lactic acid bacteria, the pH drops and it transforms uh, the milk or the puree into something that tastes very, very cheesy and maybe sharp or tangy or buttery or a whole host of different flavor profiles, depending on what cultures you're using. So that's really the, the flavor driver behind all of our cheeses. Um, we have our best-selling product, our European-style cultured vegan butter, which is made by uh, fermenting cashew milk, and it turns into something that's like butter buttermilk. Uh, and then mm -hmm. that gets ch churned with uh, with coconut oil, 
uh, to become this lovely, lovely butter where we've added no flavors whatsoever. It's entirely from the fermentation process. Um, so that's really the flavor driver. Um, the textures are achieved by a variety of methods. Uh, mm. So I won't, you know, go into all the uh, the boring technical details. The secrets. But <laughs> but, um, but so what is so obviously your business? When did you start uh, Miyoko's? How long have you been running for? Well, almost five years now. Started in two thousand fourteen. Uh, we opened shop technically in September of two thousand fourteen. It was just an e-commerce platform at the time. And it was successful right off the bat. And we, you know, be, I guess because of the book uh, and because I had been making cheese and giving talks at various events and letting people sample them, it, it sort of became, you know, I had built up pent up demand and it was kind of successful from the get go. So I feel very fortunate mm. about that because not all my other businesses were that successful. Mm, definitely. And what are some of the challenges that you faced over the years kind of growing and developing your brand? Ah, well, one of them is uh, scaling, commercializing these products, taking them out of the kitchen, you know, out of, first of all, out of my home kitchen to a small prototype plant and making small batches, very hands-on, to actually trying to automate it and commercialize it in an industrial scale uh, is I would say the number one biggest challenge that we've had because these products are things that have never been commercialized before, industrialized mm. before, and they behave differently um, when you mm. scale them. So it's been a real challenge trying to uh, you know get them to succeed. We've had a lot of failures, um, and uh, you know trying to make enough to meet the growing demand. I would say um, that and growing a company from four people to over a hundred now. Um, and wow. trying to build out that team um, has been um, a big challenge as well. What are some of your tips for growing the team? And because there's a lot of like startups out there, people I'm sure who are listening who are new business owners who are teams of two or three. Uh, Plant Based News is only a team of three full time people. We would love to grow. How do you go from that three person team to a hundred and still keep that personal touch? <clears throat> well, you know, it's been really, really important that culture is really important to me. Um, so I think right when we were about 40 people, I realized that um, I was losing touch with our employees. The culture was sort of dissipating. Um, and I had to really start thinking about what do I do to pull this team together? Uh, I'm really proud to say that at over 100 now, our culture is stronger than ever. And um, we've actively worked on that with HR and everything. Um, I'm going to just backtrack for a minute. Um, in terms of growing the company, there, there are several issues. One is always try to get the best people you can. And the people that take you from, let's say, zero to five million may not be the people that help you get to 20 million or 50 million or 100 million. Um, you know, obviously, we had some really, really great, passionate, homegrown people in the very beginning. Um, and at some point as an entrepreneur, if you really want to grow, you, you have to make some hard decisions about, you know, bringing in talent that can get you to the next level. And sometimes there, there are people that will be able to keep up with the growth and they will grow as well. And sometimes they can't grow. And sometimes, um, you know, there's another role for them. Um, we've had some of those, um, we've had, you know, we have some of the original people here, but not, not all. 
And so it, sometimes there's hard decisions that have to be made. But as your team grows, you have to really figure out what is the culture you want to, um, what you want to develop, and how do you maintain that, and how do you sh- make sure that the people that you bring in um, understand the culture and are going to fit in. So it's really important mm-hmm. to understand who you are and where and what your vision is. Um, what are the attributes that you want in your company and in every single individual? You have to go through that exercise and define them. When you interview them, you have to look for those qualities and um, establish programs that help support that. So, for example, we don't allow any animal products at Miyoko's. Mm -hmm. And we have um, probably about 40% of our employees are vegan, but not everyone's vegan. Um, And so the Mm -hmm. question is, well, it's, and some people, let's say they're, they're, um, even though we pay what's called a living wage and very, very competitive in our compensation, um, you know, hourly employees uh, working on the production floor aren't going to be compensated as well as, let's say, the marketing manager. Um, mm-hmm. And it's not fair to ask those people not to be able to bring lunch from their home um, mm-hmm. and, because they're not going to be able to go out and, you know, and buy a, you know, a $10, $15 lunch every single day. So we decided early on, um, when we were about, you know, six people that we we're just going to serve lunch, uh, it started out once a week and then three times a week. And now we have two full-time chefs and we feed our entire staff, um, two meals a day, breakfast and lunch. Actually the, the afternoon shift comes in and they have, they call it dinner. So there's food all day long. We have a popcorn wow, maker. Um, our chefs make <laughs> fresh juice every day. Um, you know, they make cookies for the staff. You know, sometimes there's a, uh, we have an arrangement with a local kombucha supplier, so we got kombucha in the fridge at all times. So there's like yeah, happy stuff. I mean, so there's food <laughs> to eat at all times, and because it's all vegan and it's all organic, um, everyone's getting the best food, and they're indoctrinated at onboarding. We have videos about animal agriculture and what it means to be a vegan. And why we're doing this, we have these videos on our mission so that if you're going to be employed here, they already know what we stand for. Every month we have a Mm. a monthly celebration, a company-wide mandatory meeting that lasts an hour. That's really, we call it a mandatory meeting, but it's really a celebration. And we celebrate um, all the birthday babes for that month. We celebrate mm. achievements of different departments and um, individuals that you know went above and beyond. Uh, we have a big birthday cake. We play a game that gets where we get to know each other. Uh, we introduce mm. new employees, um, and so we make we go out of the way to do things that bring um, together the team. We also have various projects going on. For example, we're putting in a community garden. We have a courtyard. So people are pitching in and planting vegetables. Um, you know, for our birthday celebration, it's really, really fun. But our finance team is going to do a, a team building where they're going to bake the birthday cake this month for everybody. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really important that companies, you can, I mean, I feel like with over 100 employees now, our culture is stronger than ever because of uh, it you know, these, these company practices that we have. And it's so important as the CEO of, of your company, if you're, you know, if there are any entrepreneurs out there that you get to know your employees, that you say hello to everybody, um, you know, that you make an appearance on the floor and uh, you have, you know, uh, we have um, 
we, we have what are called stand downs where we'll have everyone on the floor uh, and get together and, you know, I'll give a meeting. I'll have a little meeting with them about you know, the initiatives that we're taking, um, what we're, what's going on to create that transparency down to the last person in your company. So they know what's going on in your company. They don't want to feel mm. like they're left out of, you know, what's going on. They don't want to feel like they're insignificant that, that you want to make them feel like your office's door is open at all times. If there is any problem and, and they can't get through to a supervisor that, that you they can come into your office at any time and let you know what's going on. They have an issue. Mm. So we really worked mm. hard to create that sort of environment. And I think it's a really happy place for people to work. Sounds amazing. I can't wait to come visit. <laughs> oh, please do. Please come and visit and have some lunch. I can't wait. I can't wait. Um, so let's talk a bit about your customers. Now, um, one would assume that all your customers are vegan, but I have a, I have a, a sneaky, sneaky feeling that they're not all vegan. No, I think, um, you know, we're in about 12,000 stores now. Um, and uh, I hate to say it, but there are not that many vegans yet to support our business. So um, most of the people that are that buy our products are, I, I would call, early adopters or flexitarians. So we've done some consumer research. So the majority are, you know, the flexitarians that want to increase the the uh, amount of plant based foods in their diet. Um, also, lactose intolerance, um, etc. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've I've been to an event or a party uh, where I don't know the hosts and um, they're serving our cheese and they're not vegetarian or anything. You know, they just happen to. Everyone's trying to incorporate something vegan. You know. In, in their diet, or if they're having guests, they want to make sure that, you know, in case there's a vegan in, at the party, that they've got something to eat. So um, it, I think it's a really exciting time. And, and what we've got to do now is reach more of that mainstream audience. And, we, you know, now that we're in mainstream uh, mass market retailers like Target and Kroger, um, you know, we're really trying to speak to um, the average American and, and produce products that will resonate with them. Mm, definitely. Now, obviously, there there are challenges outside uh, these businesses, your businesses that are, or challenges, but forces that are attempting to try to circumvent everything that is going on in the vegan movement and especially the vegan food movement. Um, would you like to tell us a little bit about the historical kind of uh, initiatives in the U.S., some things like the Dairy Pride Act and these, these things that are also going on here in Europe as well, where the dairy industry is working very hard to stop plant-based milks and cheeses and yogurts from kind of seeing the light of day by forcing them to remove the words like cheese and yogurt and, uh, and butter. Uh, you've had a lot of experience in this. Do you want to tell us about a little bit about this journey? Sure. In fact, I, I just came back from Washington, D.C., where we lobbied on the Hill and as a member of the Plant-Based Foods Association, which is the trade association that represents this industry. And we had a meeting with the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, um, that has created, you know, they have something called the Standards of Identity that's the same as in Europe that basically identifies what, that uh, regulates what you can call a product. So uh, cheese is defined as a lacteal secretions of one or more healthy cows free of colostrum and la di da di da di da so technically, we're not allowed to call our products cheese or you know milk, et cetera. Um, but they've been very, very lax in enforcing those regulations. And so there's a bill in Congress now called the Dairy Pride Act that is trying to force the FDA to enforce those standards of identity, which is why we were at the FDA to talk about that. 
um, and try to get the FDA support. Um, the FDA's commissioner actually is resigning, so we don't really know what's going to happen there, and we didn't really get any clarity from the meeting. Um, but we're hopeful that the forces are with us because of, of uh, the First Amendment, which, uh, first of all, guards free speech. Um, and then, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the fact that we're not, no one is trying to sell products, plant-based products as just cheese or milk. There is always a qualifier such as plant-based milk or soy milk or, you know, almond cheese or, or they say that we are misleading, don't they? They this, this industry is is implying or inferring that brands like yourself or Alpro or Danone, who who actually has fought back against the, the Dairy Pride Act, even though they're a major dairy company, and have said, you know, consumers are not that dumb. Consumers are not confused. <laughs> so here, here's the thing: is that it's not the big dairy companies, the processors such as Danone or Dean Foods, that are. Uh, trying to get us to stop using it, these words, because they're actually investing in plant-based. And I can tell you there's a mm. huge European company right now, dairy company that is going to be putting millions and millions of dollars into plant-based. So it's not them, it's the dairy farmers. The dairy farmers, the small farmers are the ones who are struggling because milk consumption has been on de- on the decline since the 1970s. The United States has 1.4 billion pounds of cheese stockpiled that they can't offload because consumer tastes are changing and shifting towards plant-based. So it's the farmers of America, it's the Cattlemen's Association, it's these people who are running scared and are thinking that you know are feeling threatened by our industry. What I'm doing, uh, I was able to. Uh, I was invited to, to give a talk about the future of dairy at the International Dairy Foods Association meeting in Orlando in January, and I was you know thrilled to be able to talk to a room full of, of farmers and dairy processors. And what I presented was, look, we're not the threat; we're the solution. You know, dairy's been down for a long time. Plant-based foods are increasing exponentially, and it's a perfect opportunity. If you have land, instead of, you know, maybe retire your cows and you can grow crops that can become part of the supply chain for the plant for plant-based dairy products. So I, you know, I, I'm, I'm taking the position that we're a solution. We're not a threat. Um, we're not trying to put you out of business. We're giving you a solution because your business has already been declining for years anyway. And we're giving you something you can do so you can, uh, you know, start having a, a successful livelihood again. Mm. With these industries, though, um, we've been looking at numbers and uh, one would hope and assume that dairy consumption is going down. But it, we we actually shared an infographic on social media which said, you know, um, milk consumption has actually gone down in the U.S. But actually, when you look at the detail of it, it actually skimmed milk. So like lower fat milks have gone down um, Uh, sorry, um, not skimmed milk, the opposite. So like full fat milk uh, consumption has gone down, but skimmed milk consumption has gone up. And that, you know, more health conscious people are still drinking milk, but they're just drinking different types of milk. But even though farms are closing, the monster of factory farming, which we spoke about at the animal rights conference, is still there kind of with its, you know, tendrils into the earth. Um, what's your thoughts on, I'm sure I know what you're going to say, but what are your thoughts on factory farming and, and what it's doing to our world? Oh, obviously it's, it's absolutely terrible. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, we have to fight that, but 
it's just it's very interesting because I think even you know small organic dairy farmers hate factory farming. Everybody hates factory farming because of what it does not only to the land but to animal the lives of animals that are imprisoned from the time they're born um, and uh, and suffer so much. But you know there what's happening is factory farming um, is evil for sure, but just going back to the the old way um, and becoming a small family farm isn't necessarily the answer. I live in ag land. I'm surrounded by organic dairy farms that are now being seen as the solution for sustainable agriculture. Um, but and and people feel well. I don't have to give up dairy after all. I just have to choose the right kind of dairy. And I think what we have to ask is: is there any is there any way of doing the wrong thing better? And and so it can be misleading and make give people a sense of false security and uh, you know sense of wellness about what they're doing. When the answer really is um, all dairy, uh, far, all animal agriculture is, is not good. I, you probably know of Joseph Poor's study, the Oxford researcher who did that study. Uh, that covered 119 countries, 40,000 farms, uh, to figure out what the most sustainable forms of agriculture were. He wasn't vegan. A year into the study, he found he realized that there was no uh, sustainable form of animal agriculture, and he went vegan. Uh, so it's a, it's a great study, um, and you know that's what I'm seeing um, around me. I'm I'm just going to sell this. I, I've got something that's re- I'm really passionate about. I'm going to share right now, which is kind of tied to the ethical uh, part of sustainable animal agriculture. But I have a small farmed animal sanctuary and we have a variety of animals, cows and pigs and so on. And um, I have a pig that had this sort of urgent uh, skin condition that we've been trying to get treated for a while. And the vet kept putting, postponing the appointment. I finally called last week and said, um, you know, um, this is getting urgent. His skin condition is not getting better. Can I get him in to see you? Can you? And it's a mobile vet because you, you know, you can't load a, a cow into your car and take him to the vet. So, so cool. usually on farms you have mobile vets that come out and treat your animals. And I said, can't you get it, somebody out here today? It really is urgent. I need to escalate it. Mm. We got a call back from the vet saying, um, unfortunately, we can't treat your animals anymore. Um, It's making us feel uncomfortable with our other clients. Oh. And then we got a a very cryptic letter um, about comfortable communication. Um, And, Mm -hmm. you know, basically the treatment was denied to um, our pig. So this, you know, feeling uncomfortable with with their other clients. Well, their other clients are farms and ranches. Um, mm-hmm. And so this is really the, you know, it's not just about sustainability, it's about the ethical treatment of animals. Um, even veterinarians um, don't look upon sanctuaries well, because it, it really is nothing to do with the well-being of the animal himself or herself. It's really about the well-being of the livelihood of the farmer or the rancher. And so veterinary mm. care is only provided insofar as to keep an animal alive long enough to assure its health when the USDA puts its stamp of approval on that animal as a slab of, of pork or beef. Um, mm. So, yeah, factory farms are pretty terrible, but 
is sustainable ranching and farming that much better? You know, it gives mm. consumers and the animals a false sense of of um, well being for the time that they're either mm. eating the animal or for the length of time that the animal is alive before it's sent to a slaughterhouse. But mm. it's, it's a smokescreen, isn't it? Really it? Really yeah. A smoke screen to prop up ailing consumer confidence in what is becoming a vicious and violent and an oppressive system, and people are seeing through it. But we spoke a little bit. We'll touch a bit about um, on the topic of humane slaughter. Now, um, I asked you the question when we were in, at the animal rights conference of how the consumer. You know, most of the time, I would like to think of most humans as good people. They want to do good things and make better choices when it comes to their food, and they always want to make improvements. And industry knows this. And they are always putting messaging in stores and in shops about happier meat or kinder cheese or kind milk or something like that. You know, they, they even did that here in the UK. I think they had a, a whole marketing campaign of like kinder dairy, um, which basically just said the cows were outside for a little bit longer each each uh, each year, uh, so they had a little bit more space. Um, but I think, as a, lot of, as a lot of people say, you know, a bigger cage is still a cage. <laughs> yes. You know, what are your thoughts on the, on the kind of industry, the food industry and its tactics and how it tries to sort of hypnotize people into making what they think are better choices? Well, that, that's what's happening right now where I live. I mean, this is the epicenter. Um, you know, Prince Charles came to Marin County where I live uh, back in the, uh, I think it was the, the 80s or so, because this is where the organic farming movement actually started. And uh, he came to learn about organic farming. And this has developed into the epicenter of the entire organic, sustainable, regenerative movement. Um, and I, I literally drive by all these dairy farms and cow-calf operations on my way to work every day. Um, and everyone here, all the consumers here, uh, absolutely just um, are in in heaven about, I mean, they feel they live in the, you know, the parad the food paradise of the world because they have access to happy meat. Uh, this, and they mm. feel that they do not need to make any changes because they are the most, you know, consumers here feel they are the most con uh, sustainable consumers in the world, do, you know, doing all those sustainable practices. So it's, uh, mm -hmm. um, it's very misleading. It's it's hard to get them to understand that this isn't sustainable. That it's it is a smokescreen. Um, I struggle with it because not everyone can eat grass. This is the irony. We hear people say, "Oh, but you know, I eat grass fed beef, and I and my the animals that I eat are carefully chosen from from local producers." But what a lot of people don't realize is that most people in the world today can't afford to eat like that. And most people can only afford factory farmed food or animals because of the well, price. And the reason factory farming exists is because you're of price. absolutely right. I mean, we have this, this issue of having to feed 10 billion people uh, in a very short amount of time. And that is exactly right. It, this, this grass fed solution is only possibly viable for a very, very small percentage of people. I mean, it's literally for the mm. so-called one percenters, if that. But there's no way you mm. can scale this. We already take up more than half the land in the United States 
with all of the agriculture, with animal agriculture, with the crops that are grown to feed animals, as well as the grazing land for animals. We're obliterating wildlife in this, the wild, the the so-called U.S. Wildlife Services, which is this government agency whose sole responsibility is to exterminate wildlife that either threatens or competes with cattle. Uh, it's one of the worst agencies in the world. It just makes my blood curdle every time I think about them. And and the 100 million animals that were killed last year from horse wild horses to mustangs to cougars to blackbirds to coyotes to wolves to, I mean, it just bears. It just drives me crazy. Um, and people do not realize that all these people that think that they love wildlife don't realize that the single biggest um, threat to wildlife is cattle. Is it's the stake mm. on their plate? Mm-hmm. The leading cause it is of the extinction. Leading cause of extinction right. today, and all these environmentalists that I, you know, I'm surrounded by, uh, they don't know that, and so it's so important to get that information out there um, in a way that mm. doesn't make them, feel, you know, doesn't diminish who they are. They don't want to feel like you know you're this high and mighty. But mm. On that topic of uh, advocacy and how we talk about this lifestyle, um, you're obviously doing it through your products and, and, and making it easier for people to make these more more compassionate choices. But when it comes to talking to people on a day-to-day basis, you've been vegan a long time and you've obviously seen uh, you know, the movement shape and change. Um, what are your thoughts on the kind of way in which people advocate today? Because there's a lot of different styles. You know, there's a lot of people out there f- advocating with food, uh, with people out there, doctors advocating the lifestyle. But there's also uh, a kind of portion of the vegan or plant-based movement who are very, uh, who can be seen as quite aggressive or so, as the media say, say militant. Um, do you think that we have to be careful with how we pre- present this message? I do. I think we have to be careful. Um, you know, I have reached across the aisle, let's put it that way. And I have actually had, you know, I've gone out with uh, the CEO of dairy companies. I have, um, you know, obviously I was at the International Dairy Foods Association talking to dairy producers. Um, I tried to talk to local ranchers as well. And uh, you have to embrace them. Otherwise, you know, but I have, even though I feel that I'm extremely diplomatic, I have been called an eco-terrorist. Um, even wow. though I have never, ever criticized any rancher or farmer, um, I've always said, you know, I, I know farmers and ranchers who said to me, look, um, we realize that, you know, the result is that the two of us have different opinions, but I want you to understand that we care about our animals and we're doing the best we can for our animals. And what are you going to do? Just, you know, uh, spit at them and say, you know, say, no, you just can't do that. We really do have to Im- embrace what they're trying to do and and try to get them to, to go a little further. So, you know, I had coffee with um, a, the CEO of a, a big dairy out here. Um, and I got him into this conversation about the isolation pens for the calves. And um, I said, you know, I'm re- I, it just really breaks my heart. And he said, yeah, you know, you've I've seen it myself and it, it, it bo- I finally got him to say that it bothered him too. And so I said to him, mm-hmm. what if you could be the first big dairy in the country that didn't separate the calves from the moms? Wouldn't that be great? And you could advertise that, put that on your packaging and, and his, his eyes, you know, twinkle. He said, yeah, I'm going to think about that. That sounds like a great idea. And he said, you know, I feel like I'm talking to an honest broker. Um, and so this is, mm-hmm we have to approach these people 
um, from a diplomatic standpoint, one step at a time, if you bash them and you raid their farms and you steal their animals and, and call them all sorts of names, you're just getting those, you're just putting up walls. I mean, I can't tell you how much anger there is towards vegans. Um, this CEO said to me, wow, I did not realize that all vegans were like you. He said, I thought mm. all vegans were like these crazy militant eco-terrorists. Mm. And, and we're painted like that we are by the media. Like that. The media That's right. And so we have to try to be diplomatic and try to present ourselves not as the threat, but as the solution. I, I just can't stress that enough. Mm. Because mm-hmm. we need farmers, we you know vegans need farmers we to need live. To. Uh, if we want to live a, live a plant based diet, we, someone's got to grow the food unless we plan on being. That's right. We, we've got to thank those farmers and say, hey, you know, I, our new cheese line is going to be made out of potatoes and legumes. Um, I know you're struggling. How about growing some beans for me? I mean, that's the approach we have mm-hmm. to take. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like there's not enough help or there there are what I would love to do and to be a part of here in Europe and in the UK is to be uh, a part of building and forming forming some kind of um, like initiative like a foundation that can help farmers make the change yes. and and it's an it's a resource yep. of some sort that people can call a number yes. watch a video and and just help set them in the right direction because really there is absolutely right there's an organization that rowdy girl sanctuary uh and some others have started it's called uh ranchers advocacy program and i began to work with her on it um and i was also as i mentioned walking on capitol hill uh this uh, this week and i spoke to one senator's Mm -hmm. office and we were talking about agricultural subsidies and money and i said what if we could divert some of that to farmers and help them make that transition from animal ag to crops. Is that something that your office could Mm. get behind? And and this office said, Oh my God, that's incredible. I think we could probably do that and maybe steps, but you know, we're going to try to get a a bill or something um, to, to be able to divert. There's so much ag money. Let's try to divert to uh, helping farms transition. So I think, um, you know, there's money out there that, that could be had for that. Um, And there are programs that are out there. Um, and um, I think we're going to be able to, we're going to win this game. Mm, definitely. We're almost out of time, but before I let you go, um, I'd uh, want to ask you, like, how can people kind of follow you and, and follow your journey and uh, learn about everything sure, that you're doing? Sure, uh, just find us on um, social media. Our website is miyokos.com, M-I-Y-O-K-O-S.com. Uh, you can look for Miyoko's, uh, I think it's underscore creamery on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. Um, so you can follow that. You know, I have Miyoko Shinner is also a handle um, for my my personal social media. I'm not super active. I'm trying to be active, but I'm not so good at that. <laughs> so I started on Instagram like a couple of weeks ago. I thought, I'm going to do a one minute video every single day, just about my thoughts, life in the, you know, the day, a day in the life of, of, um, a plant-based, uh, entrepreneur. And I made about four videos mm-hmm. and then I haven't done it since. So anyway. <laughs> and one last question. I always love to ask my guests this, uh, if you were stuck on a desert Island and it was just you and a pig, uh, you know, that joke? Uh, no, but tell me, Oh, what would I eat? Yeah. What would oh, you eat? Oh, pig and I would go on a walk and figure out what we could find together. Cause we eat the same food. If I could give you uh, one vegan dish, um, a book, and a music album, what would you take with you? If that's all you had. Those, I'm sorry, those a three book things. and a music album. A 
book, a music album, and one vegan dish. That's all you've got for the rest of your time on the on the desert island. What you know, would you take I guess you? one of the best books I've ever read. This is really weird. Is War and Peace. Um, I probably it's mm-hmm. probably t- it's been thirty years. That could be a book that I could read again. Um, let's see. Mm-hmm. Um, a, uh, a music album. Oh my gosh. You know, I don't know. It, I'm kind of you know I listen to jazz, but. Maybe the Beatles, just something you don't get tired of. Um, and then one vegan Greatest dish. Now that is the one that would stump me. That is hard. Um, hmm. Well, so for the rest I, of time, I think pasta. Your pig friend. pasta. It would definitely be pasta uh, with tartufo sauce. Amazing. Mirakashina, thank you so much for joining us on the PBN podcast. One hour has flown by, and it's been thank an absolute you, Robbie. Pleasure. It was a blast. We'll be back next week with more veganism, life, fashion, food, technology, and everything in between.